Welcome, everybody, to episode 93 of the Bumper Sticker Faith podcast, the podcast where we like to dig a little deeper and uh, cut the BS, that's bumper stickers, that is, and um, um, get beneath the surface of things. My name is Sam Key. Our guest today is Professor Nancy Piercy, and uh, her latest book is called The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And that's what we're going to be chatting about today. And her earlier books include Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality, and The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, I know that's a favorite as well, Finding Truth, and then two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, How Now Shall We Live? And I remember that book when it came out when I was becoming a Christian years ago, and that was co-authored with uh, Harold Fickett and Chuck Colson, and then Total Truth uh, as well. And her books have been translated into 19 languages. She's a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University, a former agnostic. She has spoken at universities such as Princeton, Stanford, USC, and Dartmouth, and has been quoted in The New Yorker, Newsweek, and highlighted as one of the top five women apologists by Christianity Today and hailed in The Economist as, quote, America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. And I'm sure from now on, every host interviewing We'll add to that, you've been on the Bumper Sticker Faith podcast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, welcome, Nancy, uh, again to our show. Thanks so much. Yeah. And uh, so I've read your book twice now. <laughs> and uh, to me, I want to just begin this way. I knew it was going to be informative, so it informed me for sure. Uh, but I didn't expect these other two things quite as much. And that was, it was inspiring to me, but then also it was very convicting to me as well um, at times. So um, overall, the book was balanced, I think, because I think I was going into it thinking that, okay, this is a, a much needed book that's going to um, um, kind of um, counter the cultural um, uh, narrative out there that men are toxic and you're just going to go against it and, and say why that's wrong. And that's fully what I was expecting. And, and you did do that to a certain extent. But what, what you really um, focus on towards the end of the book was basically acknowledging that men can be quote unquote toxic and there are bad guys out there. And this is how we can address it, and, and here's some ways we can help, and and that w- that was a convicting part to me, because I don't want to be toxic. I've been toxic before in my life, and I don't want to be that way. And certainly, other guys hearing this don't want that either. And so it was a it was it was convicting and inspiring uh, to me, and I'm sure to to others that it um, it isn't that it that it is an issue, and that you're you're facing it. You're um, saying here's what's not right, but then here's some things that are of some concern. So I appreciated the balance of that. I'm not sure how aware of that balance that you were as you're writing it. You write that most people who pick up the book expect it to be polemical, right? And yes. it's not. You know, people think, okay, she's going to take one side in the culture war and she's going to fight that. In fact, let me tell you, uh, this is not in the book because it's kind of a background. When I was writing the book, uh, when it was in manuscript form, I, I, I taught classes on it. I led reading groups on it. I, I like to get a lot of feedback to help, you know, rub off the rough edges. And when they told the family and friends they were going through a, a manuscript on masculinity, invariably, the first question was, whose side is she on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just like that, with that tone to, you know, whose side is she on? <laughs> and, and the second question would be, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity anyway? <laughs> But people tended to assume, you know, men tended to assume I was going to be another male bashing feminist mm-hmm. and progressives tended to assume uh, kind of your point of view, which is I was going to be an angry, defensive reactionary saying mm-hmm. that the culture was wrong. And and both of them you know, were, were surprised when they actually read the book and said, no, I, I'm actually, you know, I'm a teacher at heart. <laughs> I'm trying to teach you, you know, where did how do Christian men do well? But on the other hand, where did the secular script for masculinity come from? You know, and it's it's secular, and so in some ways it is toxic. 
you know, it has given rise to the mm-hmm. Andrew Tates of the world. And so how can we have an objective uh, point of view that can acknowledge both of those? Uh, so that was mm-hmm. my goal. I, I almost had to plead with my readers in the first chapter. You know, as Christians, we can be in the world, but not of it. That means we can be objective, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but the book, and, and by the way, it, it, even after it came out, it continued to be controversial. I don't know if you watch Twitter much, but the day after it came out, there was a huge Twitter storm. Um, I, it was attacked by Christian egalitarians who said mm. that I was supporting complementarianism and that that was, you know, evil and dangerous. <laughs> um, and, and I don't know if you remember, but I don't even talk about that debate. Mm-hmm. And I, I explain why I don't talk about it, because I quote experts who say it doesn't seem to make that much difference. You know, a man's mm-hmm. gender theory is not really what makes his marriage good or bad. Um, so th- these were two people. One was my, my top sociologist, uh, Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. And he's, he's a very well-known sociologist. And he said, I just don't see that the gender theory makes much difference. And the other was a top psychologist, John Gottman, who's not a Christian, mm-hmm. but who's um, a very well-known Christian psych- uh, uh, marriage psychologist. And he, sa- he too, he said, I get people into my practice who think the man should be in charge of the marriage. And I get people in my practice who are more egalitarian. And he says, I'm telling you, <laughs> well, it doesn't seem to make a difference. And here's how he put it. Emotionally. Uh, emotionally intelligent husbands, that's his phrase, mm-hmm. emotionally intelligent husbands have figured out the important thing, which is how to convey honor and respect to your wife. And so I even explain in the book why I'm not dealing with this issue. And I still got jumped on for it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, well, it, it, you, it's been remarkable. You started off the book, though, I, and I want to give you a chance to share how, about your story, your personal story, because after I read that, I'm thinking this, it's a it's a brilliant way to start the book. Um, it's a hard way to start the book, but you talk about your own experience with a you know a, a toxic your primary the primary male figure in your life who um, showed a lot of toxicity toxicity or sin I would say, and that was your father. Can you share um, that story or that experience? Yeah. Yes, I, I put it in the introduction. Um, I, I grew up in a in an abusive home. My father was severely physically abusive. In, in books on abuse, they will sometimes ask, was it open hand or closed fist? And it was closed fist. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, he, he, it was a knuckle fist. He would stick a one, one finger out like that to cause a sharper stab of pain. And uh, you know, so he was punching and kicking and he was quite open about it. He would say, do this or I'll beat you. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't disguising at all. <laughs> and so I do start out the book that way. And um, one of, one of my reviewers, he put the review on Amazon, is a psychologist. And he said, um, well, first of all, he said, when I read your opening story, I thought, oh, no, you know, it's going to, it's an abused woman. She's going to be angry at men. Exactly. That's, <laughs> that's what I would think. And then he said, when I read it, though, of course, it's, it's not at all. I mean, it's very mm-hmm. supportive. It's very, it's very empathetic to men. And he said, but you know, what that story gives us is it shows us you're not writing from an ivory tower. You know, you're mm-hmm. writing from the trenches. And, and that is why I put it at the front, because I wanted people to realize it wasn't just an academic exercise mm-hmm. for me. You know, I didn't, I'm not coming out of a, you know, a wonderful, pristine background where I can just treat these things theoretically. Uh, as I put it in the introduction, in a sense, I've been writing this book my whole life, yeah. in the sense that I've ha- been having to work through what is a po- positive biblical view of masculinity for many, many years. How can you not like be bitter and, uh, you know, and predictably upset and angry and, and take on that role that that reviewer assumed that you were going to take on? Like that, that, that when I read that, that just, it blows my mind. And I'm wondering how you're not uh, bitter towards men and that how you could write a book like this. Well, of course I did uh, in my young adult life. I, I, mm-hmm. I ricocheted off into feminism. You know, as an avid feminist, I've got all the major feminist works. I always had some feminist book on my bedside table. <laughs> um, and so that, you're right. That, that's the first reaction. Yeah. But here's what happened. Um, before we came on the air, you asked me a little bit about my time at Labrie, which mm-hmm. is the Ministry of Francis Schaeffer. And I often include that in my testimony because that is how I became a Christian. Uh, but what I've never told anyone before, um, 
there's an angle of my stay at Labrie that was uh, very life-changing besides becoming a Christian, which was life-changing. Mm-hmm. Um, at Labrie, um, you know, Professor Shea was known for his apologetics, right? So that was the first thing I got out of going to Labrie. Yeah. I'd never heard any Christians before give good reasons, arguments, and evidence for Christianity. I'd never met Christians who could engage with the secular worldviews that I had absorbed by that time. Um, so that was very impressive. But also on the staff at Labrie was a psychiatric social worker. Hmm. Her name was Sheila Bird, and we called her Birdie. And she was the one who helped start me on emotional and psychological and spiritual healing from my traumatic childhood. Wow. Uh, when I left home, I, I tried to leave my childhood behind. I thought, hey, I, I'm going to wipe, uh, you know, wipe the slate clean and start. I'm going to rebuild my whole self from scratch because my past was so painful. Yep. And she helped me to realize, no, you actually can't do that. <laughs> you really mm. do have to work through that kind of trauma. And, uh, and, but she also exhibited a quality of love that I had never experienced before. And so by the time I left Labrie, I not only had her wisdom on emotional healing, but I had experienced a quality of love that in many ways, <laughs> Bertie became my model for God. <laughs> when, when I prayed, I would sort of imagine Bertie, <laughs> I, you know, uh, exaggerated version of Bertie listening to me. And then I could, then I could experience God's love. And, you know, that is the ultimate form of healing. It's not anything you know or think. It's it's the experience of God's love. Love is healing. It's hard to explain it any deeper than that. But hmm. being loved is healing. And if you can uh, gain that sort of intense, um, direct experience of God's love, that is what causes emotional healing more than anything else. Wow. And you also mentioned in the book that your dad was one way in private and another way in public. And that kind of leads you into this um, idea of these two scripts for masculinity. Uh, could you tell us what those two scripts are uh, today? Yeah, so this is uh, a result of a really interesting sociological study. There's a sociologist who speaks all around the world. And so he came up with this clever experiment. He would ask young men two questions. He'd ask them, what does it mean to be a good man? You know, if you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says, He was a good man. What does that mean? Hmm. And all around the world, young men have no trouble answering that. They would say things like duty, honor, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, look out for the little guy. I kind of like that one. Um, (laughs) Be be a protector, be a provider, be responsible. And the sociologists would ask them, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, well, it's just in the air we breathe. Or if they were in a Western country, they would say, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. And then he would follow up with a second question. He'd say, well, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young man would say, oh, no, that's completely different. That means be tough, be strong, and never show weakness, win at all costs, um, be competitive, get rich, get laid. I'm using their language. Mm -hmm. And so, in other words, the, the sociologist concludes that young men sort of inherently, innately know what it means to be a good man. This seems to be universal. We would say all men are made in God's image, right? Mm. And they, they do know what it means to, to be a good man. Romans 2, we all have a conscience. Uh, but they also feel this cultural pressure to be the quote-unquote real man, which are the traits that m- most of us consider more toxic. A- at least if it decoupled from a moral ideal, it can easily slide into entitlement and dominance and control and so on. And so... It seems to me that it suggests a much better way to to approach these issues. Men don't respond very well to being called toxic, right? (laughs) Nobody would. But what we can do is we can be convinced that on on some level, they really do have an inherent knowledge of what it means to be the good man. And can we tap into that? Can we support that? Can we affirm it? Can we encourage that? You know, can we make allies with the good part of the man? and then help them to address maybe some of the more negative traits they've picked up from the, from the culture. And it also gives us a, a kind of apologetics, I would suggest, because many times people think the Christian ethic is not very manly, right? Uh, the, the Andrew Chase of the world, right? Fast cars, fast women, fast money. 
would say that Christianity is not masculine. It, it goes all, all the way back to the philosopher Nietzsche, who said that, you know, Christian, Christianity makes men meek and humble and weak. So, but that's not true. Christianity actually does adhere to, it matches men's inherent innate sense of the good man. And therefore, when we ask men to follow a biblical ethic, it's not imposing something alien on them. It's something that fits with and matches their true essential nature. Yeah. In fact, in fact, let me give you one more um, study because you know it's, it's great to see non-Christian social scientists saying the same thing. So this was a uh, the first ever um, cross cross cultural study of concepts of masculinity done by an anthropologist, and he said no matter how their definitions of masculinity might be different, you know, some cultures are more warlike, others are more peaceful. Uh, he said he found that in all cultures they expect that men will perform what he called the three P's, yeah. provide, protect, and procreate, mm -hmm. or build into the next generation. Mm -hmm. And I thought, there it is again. You know, men inherently know that the gifts that they have, their unique mas masculine strengths, were not given them, you know, just to get whatever they want, but to provide, protect, to take care of those that they love. Because I love the way that you tied it into nature, because that's another thing, by the way, I had to do in my book. One of the first questions I would get was, what do you think is the difference between men and women? Mm -hmm. Well, let's start with the physical. Mm -hmm. It is clear that men are bigger, stronger, faster, that testosterone makes them more aggressive, um, makes them more risk-taking. And these are the basic, uh, I like the way you put it, it's nature. It's the basic nature that God gave men to start with. And so... Uh, I think that these studies show that men understand that these are their strengths, but they're not just given them, you know, for their own satisfaction, gratification. They're given them for a purpose and men need a purpose. They need the sense of calling and direction. And I, I just, lo I love the fact that both of these studies were, were worldwide. They were global. And so what it su suggests to me is that this is part of um, general revelation. You know, we talk about scriptures Mm -hmm. is special revelation. This is general revelation. These are men who understand what it means to be a good man all around the world, from Brazil to Sweden to Australia. No matter what their background is, they understand this. So I think it's wonderfully confirming of a biblical view of manhood. I would say, too, though, that, I, I don't know, I'm still working on this idea, but <laughs> both males and females use uh, masculine and feminine uh, characteristics so that when a woman needs to be strong, you could say she's using her, her masculine um, uh, part of herself. And when a, when a, when a guy needs um, maybe more um, empathy or embodiment even, that perhaps he's using more of his uh, feminine um, side. Uh, so I don't... Like there, every, everyone has both, I think. Um, yes, yes. Well, I'm a little, I'm a little um, hesitant to say like a man who's empathetic is using his feminine side. I have a fantastic quote from C.S. Lewis. Yeah, do you remember that? I remember that. that. He, I remember uh, that. Where he said, "Don't do that," <laughs> because yeah. what it implies is that men are not naturally empathetic. You know, or if if you say a woman's being strong is tapping into her masculine side, that's implying that women are not naturally strong. And mm -hmm. so, you know, he. You remember how Lewis said that's a that's a form of um, that that's a f is this pre-recorded? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what he said. It's a, oh, what did he say? It's a form of. Do you remember? I just read it. <laughs> it'll it'll <laughs> it'll come to us all later. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, yes. Uh, um, one of the things I, I was careful to say in the book. You see. The reason that people are hesitant to say that there are differences between men and women, you know, like the reason feminists are hesitant to say mm -hmm. that is because almost always when you note a difference, one will be less than, you know, one will be put down and considered inferior. Mm. And so it's, I think it's very important that when we talk about the differences, we talk about them as both forms of strength. You know, so I have a section in there where I say, uh, you know, the, the things that are dis distinctive to women, first of all, we're more alike than we're different, you know, let's make sure we always establish that. If you take a psychological trait and, you know, for men, it makes a bell curve. And if you take the same psychological trait for women, it makes a bell curve and they overlap closely. Even aggression, this one surprised me. 
even aggression, they overlap quite close, closely. Uh, so there are a lot of women who are more aggressive than the average man. So, um, they're different mostly at the extremes. And that's why 95% of people in prison are male. <laughs> they're, they're all from that extreme. Um, but when you do mention the differences, like um, a woman facing childbirth, that's huge. <laughs> because uh, um, there are people who say that the pain of childbirth is perhaps the worst pain of all. Or, or I think of um, caring for a newborn. Caring for a newborn is a 24-hour day task. And until they're about a year old, you know, if a newborn is, is in distress, you don't scold them, you don't reason with them, you don't punish them, you meet their distress. Even if it's at three o'clock in the morning, no matter what else you're doing, you know, you have to stop what you're doing. You have to be, it, 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 it requires a tremendous strength of character. You have to be sensitive and patient. You have to be very tuned into nonverbal communication since they're not talking yet. <laughs> and, you, you have to, um, you also have to be very aware of threats in the environment. You know, you, in a sense, the woman takes on the vulnerability of her child because if she becomes the mama bear, you know, because she has to be very sensitive to things that might hurt the child. So it's a good thing to, to always say, well, these are strengths. These are not weaknesses. These are good things. Uh, they're, they're all connected to women's superpower, which is, mm -hmm. you know, bearing new life. So I think that by, by being Lucius, men have certain strengths, women have other strengths, mm -hmm. but to always uh, phrase them in terms of strengths. I remember, so I just, uh, yeah, I go ahead. Remember, I just remember this, what C.S. <laughs> Lewis said. I, I'm, I'll try to make this um, a clean cut so that you can edit it. C.S. Lewis um, used the term arrogance. That's what it was. Mm. C.S. Lewis says, if you, we say that uh, strength or frankness in a woman is tapping her masculine side, that's arrogance because we're claiming those traits. No, those are women's traits too. Mm -hmm. And then he said, if, if a, speaking of a man, if you talk about his gentleness or his empathy and you call that tapping into his feminine side, because that's arrogance because you're implying that those are women's traits. Mm -hmm. So I, I have never seen that quote from C.S. Lewis before, um, before I wrote my book because uh, people, nobody knows C.S. Lewis said that. And I thought it was wonderful that he mm -hmm. was able to say, look, you know, let's make sure that we acknowledge that both men and women have their own strengths um, and, uh, you know, and that nobody has a monopoly on any particular character strengths. There's an episode. In, the, in, in scripture, uh, oh. you know, most of the commands are given both, both sexes, right? The, the Sermon on the Mount, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Most commands are given to both men and women. So, you know, uh, we need to make sure we're always working within that context. Go ahead. Excuse me, I interrupted you. I, I was recalling a Seinfeld episode from like the late '80s or early '90s where uh, they were talking about uh, beauty and why uh, nobody likes to look the, at the physical features of a guy. And the character Elaine said, "She said it's easy. Men are jeeps. <laughs> men, <laughs> men are just jeeps. They're just plain. So no one wants to. No one wants to look at them." And I and I thought, wow, that's 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 true. There's there's a there's a, a beauty to one and and a plainness to others, according to Seinfeld. Well, I love jeeps. We had jeeps when I was growing <laughs> up. I desperately wanted a jeep. Last last time we bought a car, but they're they're top heavy, so they're not so safe. Yeah. Apparently, I love jeeps. <laughs> Could you talk about this this idea that's out there i want to be sure that we hit on this because this is huge that people often accuse evangelical christian men of being oppressive patriarchs prone to abuse but you make a surprising claim that they test out as having the lowest levels of abuse and divorce so could you talk about that yeah so um it was very easy for me to find examples of people making that charge you know that that evangelical men are sort of exhibit a of toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. uh, I'll, and I'll give you just one. So this was the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which came after the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. So the social scientists were looking at these accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. And so in my book, I cite some dozen or so studies. And what they found was, as you said, to everyone's surprise, including mine, right? Because we've all heard the media narratives. Mm -hmm. So I was very surprised to find out that 
evangelical men test out on top in terms of being the most loving husbands and fathers. And they are the most engaged. Oh, first of all, it's their wives who are saying, they're, they're interviewing, interviewing the wives separately. So mm -hmm. their wives are saying that they, they're reporting the highest level of happiness with their husband's love and affection. Then evangelical fathers spend more time with their kids than any other group, both in shared activities like church youth group or sports, and also in discipline, like setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples divorce at the lowest rate of any group in America, 35% lower than secular men. And then they have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any group in America. And I thought, we need to get this information. Of any group. Yeah, of any group. Any, wow. Any, I think they said any major group. So, you know, might, mm -hmm. that might not include the Amish. You know, that might include some small groups, but any major group in America. Um, and, and, and I had to go digging in the academic literature to find this. It's not, it's not out there. And, and let me give you one, one quote. Sometimes a quote can really crystallize it. So I'm going to give you um, a quote from Brad Wilcox, is a sociologist at the University of Virginia. And uh, to give you a sense of his stature, he writes in places like the New York Times. So this is an article from the New York Times where he said, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. They're, they're focusing especially on the wives because you know the presumption is that these men are overbearing tyrannical patriarchs. So no, no, in fact, the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. And then actually he turns to his um, colleagues, you know, most uh, sociologists are very secular. It's a very secularized field. And so he says to them, academics need to cast aside their prejudices about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. And what I like about this is this is not some, you know, a pep talk from a religious leader. Mm -hmm. This is, this is a, a solid empirical studies from the social sciences. This is evidence-based research that shows that Christianity really does have an answer to reconciling the sexes, as I put it in my subtitle. And so I, I would really like to see this information get out into the churches so that we can encourage Christian men, because, of course, many of them feel as beaten down, you know, as secular mm -hmm. men do. When I told my class at Houston Christian uh, University that I was writing a book on masculinity, one of my male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. And then we also need to be bringing this into the public square and showing people that the secular narrative is completely wrong. You know, we need to debunk it with real facts. So, so, so that's what I'd hope to do by bringing this into my book, you know, out of the uh, professional literature and into my book. Hope, hopefully this will make it more widely known. concept of masculinity being toxic was probably out of the 1960s second wave feminism but no you have to go much further back mm. so prior to the industrial revolution men worked alongside their wives and children all day on the family farm the family business the family industry and so the cultural expectation on men was very much geared toward their caretaking role you know the responsibility for their family um, in fact most of the child-rearing literature of the time sermons and advice books were written to fathers you know wow. today if you go into a bookstore they're mostly written to mothers yeah back then they were written to fathers because yeah. fathers were first of all they did have they were with their children just as much as mothers were and mm. then they were considered to have a special responsibility for their children's intellectual and spiritual development and of course you know they were also making their way in a wilderness so they had to have the more traditional um male virtues like resilience and mastery and courage and so on 
but the emphasis tended to still be on you didn't do that for yourself you did that for your family mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't a matter of self-promotion after the industrial revolution well what does it do it takes work out of the home mm -hmm. and of course men had to follow their work out of the yeah. home into factories and offices and for the first time instead of working with people they loved and had a moral bond with they were working as individuals in competition with other men mm -hmm. and this is when you see the literature start to change people started to protest that men were losing that caretaking ethos of the colonial age and they were becoming self-interested and egocentric and you know greedy and acquisitive and look out for number one and and they were making their career into an idol these are all language i'm, I'm giving you language that was used at the time mm -hmm. people began to complain that instead of living you know working for their families they were making an idol out of self-advancement and you know professional uh success and 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 financial gain and so on i mean literally um there was one uh letter to the editor into a newspaper in a newspaper at the time saying the American man in becoming financially successful is losing his soul. Mm -hmm. You know, he's making an idol out of career success. So that is the first time that you actually start to see negative language applied to the male character. And, and, and my, uh, I want to, a little kind of a, a pit stop in there, uh, which I think is a good, um, I guess, illustration of, of what exactly was happening is, women's suffrage and women voting because this was this blew me away because I, I never I didn't learn this in school that initially when it when women it was came up for or women to vote most of the women didn't want the vote because voting as you explained was uh, households would be represented and their fear was that uh, if everybody uh, individually got the vote, then that, uh, that would um, split up households. It may make men think even more of themselves as individuals. Women is, and everybody would be, you know, furthering that industrial revolution mentality of competition. And so women actually said, "No, our our household is voting, and uh, and this is how it's done." But that was, I think, a great illustration of this thing that was happening that. Uh, relationships were being broken, homes were being broken uh, because of the Industrial Revolution, right? Yeah, um, I've had people be really skeptical of that part of the book, so I made sure I included quotes from the early feminists saying yeah. the main opposition to the vote is coming from other women. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton said, you know, the main opposition is, you know, standing in our way is other women. And, and it also represented a shift in political philosophy. The main reason I put it in there uh, was to illustrate that America started out with a political philosophy that was very organic, you know, the, that the um, family is an organic unit. Mm -hmm. And that the uh, part of that was that authority was defined as the person responsible for the common good. You know, authority mm -hmm. didn't mean I could do what I want. Mm -hmm. Authority was defined as, well, think of it this way. I look out for my good. You look out for your good. But, who looks out for the common good, whether it's of the marriage, of the family, the church, the civil society, whatever. The position of authority, the person was not allowed to look out for his own interests because his job was to look out for the common good. Yep. The common good. That was a technical term, the common good. Yes, yes. Yep. And then there was a shift to a much more individualistic notion of society. It, with the label there would be social contract theory which is the idea that no we're just all a bunch of individuals and you know we, we we get together if we have a common interest so the family is no longer an organic unit but people who have a common interest and the way that that was illustrated in the vote was when they said no when women said we want the household vote they meant we want men who feel responsible for the good of the whole household that's right we want men who think that they're responsible for the common good we don't want men voting as individuals. Mm. And so they, the main concern here, I mean, the, the shift from one political philosophy to the next was that it let men off the hook. That mm. was their concern, that it reduced men's sense of responsibility for the common good. Men began to think, well, I just speak for myself. You know, yeah. I, I, I vote for whatever I think is good for me. Now, of course, this didn't happen overnight, but there was a, definitely a shift from the household to the, to the individual. And I illustrate it because that was one step in the secularization of the script for masculinity. 
when men stopped feeling like I'm responsible for the household and started acting like an individual when they were in the public square. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that TV program, Dirty Jobs? <laughs> it was it was so popular because it was almost nostalgic. Oh, look what it was like when men, you know, were needed for this f- sheer physical strength. But I also think that sometimes as Christians, we under understate the importance that the body still plays. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was on a podcast not long ago where somebody said, well, apart from the physical differences, you know, what makes men and women different? And I said, apart from the physical, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> stop right there. That's still huge. <laughs> it's it's still wow. huge because, one, uh, you know, uh, 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 I was talking to some, a young couple recently and we were talking about how uh, when you're first married, you can live like roommates. You know, that's being married is no big deal. It's when you start having kids. <laughs> In other words, when the physical differences show up, the woman is pregnant, the woman is nursing, she's got, you know, a, a baby in arms <laughs> and, and one on the way. And, you know, uh, in most uh, pre-modern cultures, you know, uh, childbearing was quite frequent and a woman spent most of her life <laughs> nursing and pregnant and mm-hmm. and a kid hanging onto her skirts. Um, but still, it, even today, it's when you start having children, the sheer physical differences really do show up. And I'm I'm a little bit concerned when people downplay that because it takes things like the the, the, the pay gap between men and women. It's not a pay gap between men and it's not a gender gap. It's a mommy gap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> women cut back when they have kids. You know, it's not because they're women that there's a pay, ba- pay gap. It's because they want to cut back and have time with their children. It's a mommy gap. Mm-hmm. So it still does have a huge impact on our lives. And I should say, uh, women who've been abused in any way are exceptionally aware of the difference between men and women because um, do, do you realize that 50% of female homicides, I'm talking about female murders are by men, uh, by, by, uh, by, uh, excuse me, by domestic partners. In other words, yeah. not just any man, but a domestic uh, intimate, intimate partner. So it's either husband or former husband, boyfriend or boy, former boyfriend. 50% of female homicides are intimate partners. Um, uh, by the way, the, the number for murdered men is 3%. Hmm. So, you know, by far, when there's any kind of abuse, suddenly those uh, physical differences are very, very, very uh, at the forefront. And um, there was a woman who's, uh, who's written a book recently. She's, she, she started out as this very liberal feminist. Um, she wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And if you haven't read it, you'd like it. <laughs> but so she was very leftist. She writes for left-leaning publications. She's British. And then she worked at a rape shelter. And now she's conservative on a far of most on most uh, social and moral issues, oh. because that was what taught her. Hey, men and women are actually different. <laughs> you know, a, a man can rape a woman. He can overpower her physically in a way that it's not the same. You know, women cannot rape a man in the same way and um that once she decided men and women were, di- were different she she went all the way into all kinds of oh well, marriage is actually kind of good you know and um and maybe there was something good about chastity before marriage and maybe this you know she went on and on and now uh she's become conservative on a large number of areas and i just recently heard from a mutual friend uh that she's been attending church for the past year <laughs> but wow um You'll have to look her up, Louise Perry, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. But the thing I found so interesting, it's when she really came face to face at a rape crisis center with um, the physical differences between men and women. She was uh, one of the things that she had to do as part of, of, of working there was she had to testify in, in cases where men had uh, murdered women in the process of having sex, you know, uh, and, and they would, hmm. you know, uh, this new thing, Strangle. this relatively new thing of strangling, yeah, yeah. Uh, that has led to several deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would have to go to court and testify. And the man would always say, well, she was con- she was consenting. She was consenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and she it's said, awful. hmm, maybe consent is not the absolute <laughs> foundation of sexual ethics after all. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there's more to sexual ethics than just consent. So all that to say, I think we sometimes overlook 
the, um, the amount of difference it still does make to acknowledge that men and women are physically different. Well, one of the things I did in this book, um, you, you know, it's, it's the most fact-based book I've written. It's very data-driven. You know, I have the data from the social sciences. I have the data from history and so on. Is I didn't want to ask, you know, theologians, what do you think concepts like headship and submission mean? Um, because anyone can pontificate on what they think. I wanted to find out how ordinary Christians actually live it out. And the reason I did was because um, the, the secular critics, you know, I am a, an apologist at heart. You know, I want to defend Christianity. And in this book, I want to defend the biblical view of masculinity. And so many people were saying, so many outside critics were saying, you know, that any, any form of male headship is going to turn men into these overbar overbearing patriarchs. And so I thought, well, the way to answer that is to find out, does it? <laughs> does it, in fact, make these men into abusive men? And so I looked at research that was done, surveys and questionnaires done of Christian men and couples and couples. Um, what, what in fact do they do in terms of how do they live out their understanding of headship mm -hmm. and submission? And I was blown away. I have to tell you, I was blown away. I had no idea that they would speak of headship in such a loving, you know, and mutual, caring ways. And first of all, the passage that they cited most often was Ephesians 5. Husbands, love mm -hmm. your wife as, as Christ loved the church. And later, when I get into the, the abuse chapters, I ran into people who said, I never even heard that. I never heard that verse. <laughs> but mm -hmm. the, the really committed Christian men, that was by far the, the verse they quoted most often. And then secondly, when they described what they meant, you know, like, the, the research would, would say, well, what do you think headship means then? And they would, the most frequent answer was not breadwinner, was not final authority, was not tiebreaker. Hmm. It was spiritual leader. Spiritual leader was the most common definition of headship. And what do you mean by that? So then they would say, well, you'd start with the practical things, like get your family to church on Sunday, get your kids to youth group, have family devotions, have family Bible reading and prayer. But then they would also talk about the, the more intangible parts of it. Like, you know, I'm responsible for my kids, you know, spiritual growth. And I'm responsible for my wife's, you know, being happy and healthy and growing in her spiritual life. And they would have this sense of, you know, the, the buck stops here. There was a fascinating um, study that I cite in the book. It was a 35-year study. So it was a very, a very long longitudinal study of, of Christian fathers. And um, it, was a, it won a lot of awards. It was a very high, high quality study. And the interesting thing that he found was two, two interesting facts. Um, one interesting fact was that the mother matters more than the father in terms of whether the children actually carry on the faith. The, the father- The father matters, matters more. More. Yeah. If the father is a Christian, 68% of his kids will follow him into yeah. practicing their religion. And the mother, oh, I don't remember the exact number for the mother. It's about 40%. Mm -hmm. If the mother's a Christian, you know, it has an impact, but not as much. And my female students didn't like this. When I went through the manuscript in my classes, they'd say, well, how come women don't have more of an, of an impact? And I say to them, I'm sorry, that's just the fact. You know, men have impact whether they want to or not. Men have influence, men have leadership, whether mm -hmm. they want to or not. And it's important for men to realize that. You're going to have an impact. Um, and 68% of, uh, if, if fathers are Christian, 68% of their children follow them. But the second thing was this, it, on, it only works if the father has a close, loving relationship with the child. If the father's, if the father's, you know, a moral, a pillar of the church, if he's a moral exemplar, if he has perfect doctrine, but he doesn't have a warm, loving relationship, his children will not follow him in faith. So... It's, it's the relationship that counts. And even secular people found this. This was fascinating. I read a book by a, a science researcher who said, um, the father's masculinity is not what counts in whether his kid is masculine or not. It's whether he loves his kid, his son. If they have a, a so the secular person was finding something quite similar. Mm -hmm. it, the son will be masculine if his father loves him. Not based on whether, how masculine the father is, but by how much the father loves the son. 
So relationship is inc incredibly important. You know, and, and there, people are finding that both from the Christian and the secular perspective. So the Industrial Revolution, just to recap, broke men out of that natural relationship that they would have with their kids and their family at home and by moving them out. And you get into, well, you mentioned Robert Bly. I love Robert Bly and Iron John and his, and, and he, he also pinpointed that, that it was the industrial revolution that caused the father wound. And we see that, um, then in order to, um, restore that fathers have to be intentional about having relationships to their kids, sons or daughters, in order to overcome that. So now that we've kind of, we're waking up and we're realizing that for men to be away from their home all the time, you know, that's not good, that we need to be extra intentional about those relationships with our kids. We, we realize that now. So I guess as we, as we close, what are some ideas, some strategies, some examples that you give uh, in your book, and I want to encourage people. There's a lot of them <laughs> in her book, so get get the book, get the book. Um, but could you highlight some ways, or maybe some examples that guys can be more intentional about initiating those relationships uh, with their kids? And and I, I guess I want to highlight that initiating part. To me, that goes into the the masculine trait of going first. You know, being the head is like being the head water. You know, the origin, the source, the initiator. And so, guys, it's up to you to initiate uh, this. So what are some of those ways? Yes, um, well, I'm glad you mentioned Robert Bly because he actually called it industrial fatherlessness. Okay. Term. Um, and, and even today, in, in studies done by the National Fatherhood Initiative, men still say that the major barrier to being involved with their kids is the, is the work structure. And so the question is, can we flex the workplace at all to allow fathers to be home with their kids more? And the pandemic really was a game changer because a lot of people are saying, hey, we actually like being home more and, you know, working from home and being close to our kids. The New York Times just recently had an article uh, and the title was something like, during the pandemic, fathers got closer to their kids and they don't want to lose that. And so I do have lots of anecdotes and examples of people who found ways to you know, set up a hybrid situation, you know, work two days from home or leave early so that they can uh, coach their son's soccer team. Or, and of course, some of them came home altogether. I'll, I'll, I'll give you just one example. Sometimes a, an example crystallizes that this was one of my graduate students. She was married to an IT professional who came home and worked during the pandemic. And because he was home, he was able to be more involved with their family's homeschooling. He decided he would be the one to make lunch every day. He could take his kids to soccer practice or choir practice. Um, and he picked up so many of the family responsibilities that his wife was able to start a part-time business. And the whole family benefited from the added income. So I interviewed her husband. And he said, our life is so much more balanced now. He said, I am never going back to 40 hours in a cubicle. Mm. And then the final kicker was this. He said, the time that I used to spend commuting to work every morning, I now spend praying with my wife. Wow. And I thought, okay, that encapsulates what we would like to see people be able to do more often and to, to reconnect fathers with their kids. And I do have to say this. Research has shown that father substitutes can have a big difference too. Because today, I, you may remember this from the book, but 40% of children today in the U.S. are growing up apart from their natural fathers. We have the highest rate of single parenthood in the world. Wow. So we also have to ask, is there a way that we can help fatherless children? Mm. And extended? it turns out that extended family members and teachers and coaches and church youth group leaders and big brother programs can all have quite a big uh, impact. And that's cool because that means it's something all of us have a chance to help, to yeah. help solve. It's not just, it's not just up to the family. Every one of us can. I, I would suggest, for example, that churches should make a higher priority of having a ministry to fatherless yeah. boys, boys in particular. Um, you know, if there's one psychiatrist who put it this way, we're not going to have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers. 
You know, it's fathers raising the next generation that will make for help, healthy you know, boys growing up with a healthy biblical view of masculinity. And you may be a um, you may be a blue collar dad and don't have that flexibility to um, you know create your recreate your schedule, or you may be a, a divorced dad and you don't have access to kids your kids all the time. Well, you just have to be more intentional. There are ways. Uh, there are things that you can do to be more intentional. Yes, um, I'll, I'll give one example. So a friend of mine uh, owns his own uh, car repair shop. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Uh, he can't bring the cars home, but he can bring his bookkeeping home. He brings his bookkeeping home, and he can do that at the kitchen table while his kid's doing the homework next to him. Wow, and that's so he great. can answer questions and so on. So there are aspects of most jobs that can be done at home while your children are young. And I'm not saying it's perfect for everybody at all stages yeah. of life. My point is for children. Um, and so... Um, and even um, pink collar work, like the counterpart to okay. work for women <laughs> is pink collar work, right? Um, the last time I had my hair done, it was a woman who'd set up a beauty, uh, the chair, the beauty chair, <laughs> a beauty parlor type chair in her basement, one chair. And uh, while she was doing my hair, there was a um, glass door and we could look out and you know watch her children hmm. playing in a fenced in backyard. And so, um, you know, people who work with their hands, usually there is some aspect of the job that could be done at home, you know, if, if we're really creative about it. So that, that's what I encourage people. Not every job can be done at home, but every job, almost every job has some aspect that could be done at home. I guess I want to ask one more question. My question is, like, on the other hand, could you speak to toxic guys, guys who have messed up, who have failed, who have gotten it wrong? Uh, what hope uh, can they have to begin to change? Yeah, um, I have two chapters. Well, you know, actually, I should give a little background. Why do I have two chapters on abuse? Because um, I gave you that really good, the good news about evangelical men that they test out very well, you know, mm -hmm. on the top in terms of being loving husbands and fathers. Um, and then the pushback I always get is, but don't we hear that Christians divorce at the same rate as everyone else? In fact, in my research, I found that that was one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. Yeah, yeah. So the researchers went back to the data and they separated out, you know, the evangelical men who were truly committed and who are authentic in their faith and who attend church regularly from the nominal Christian men. Mm -hmm. And uh, my students don't know what nominal means, so I have to tell them uh, N-O-M is Latin for name, and so it means in name only. Yep. So these are men who, on a survey like this, might check the Baptist box, for example, but who don't go to church, or rarely, if at all. And they test out shockingly different. Their wives test out the lowest in terms of the hap their happiness mm. in the marriage. They test out as doing, having the least amount of time with their kids. They have the highest rate of divorce, 20% higher than secular men. And then wow. the real shocker is they have the highest rate of domestic violence, even higher than secular men. Mm. So these are men who identify as evangelical. But as, as you can see, if you did a study of, of evangelicals across the board, you get misleading statistics because mm -hmm. you're getting men who are better than secular men and you're getting men who are worse than secular men. And so the numbers are misleading. Uh, and that's why I had to include two chapters on abuse, because, you know, once I've acknowledged that. Uh, nominal Christian men have a higher level of abuse than even secular men. It would look like I was sweeping that under the carpet if I mm -hmm. didn't address it. So that's that's what I do. And fortunately, we're at the stage where um, we're at the stage where the, the books by Christians have really changed. Um, their books on Christian books by Christians, therapists, pastors used to pretty much hold the wife responsible. You know. If only you would be more submissive, if only you would be more loving, if only you would forgive him more, oh. you know, if only you would make his favorite meals, if only you would have sex more often, if only you would lose weight and look better, then he would be okay. Well, it turns out that that's just not true. It's not that true. That drives me crazy. Psychology. I mean, we all know that a bully, like the playground bully, you know, if you placate him or appease him, acquiesce to him, he's not going to stop. We know that yep. in international affairs, if you have a belligerent nation, you know, if you acquiesce to bullies, they get worse. And mm -hmm. somehow that was not applied to marriage 
until very recently. And fortunately, there are more books now by Christian therapists and theologians who are saying, actually, uh, a woman cannot change a man. I mean, most abuse, it's a serious abuse, at least, is, um, you know, is, is committed by men because they are bigger and stronger and they can do more damage. Um, so the, the, a woman can't change an abusive man by just being nicer. You know, what a bully thinks is, oh, you're saying it's okay. Yep. You take forgiveness as acceptance of bad behavior. Yep. So now, now what you find in books written by Christian therapists and theologians is Matthew 18. Jesus himself said the way you deal with sin is Matthew 18. Namely, you know, you confront them, you, you call sin out, not in retaliation, not in revenge, but for reconciliation, right? Because that passage ends with, if he listens to you, you have, you have won your brother. So that's the goal is to win your brother. But it does take Matthew 18. You know, you confront them. If they don't listen to you, you bring a couple more witnesses in. If they still don't listen, you bring the whole church in. If they don't listen to the whole church, you know, that might be time for church discipline. I mean, the whole Matthew 18 um, passage from Jesus' own mouth is, is, the, is the solution when somebody is clearly sinning in a relationship. And so the, the best thing you can do for somebody who is mistreating someone in their family is, in fact, to call them out on it. That mm -hmm. This is sin and, you know, they need to be held accountable. Can I add one more point to that? Um, Absolutely. Um, there, there's a book by a non-Christian therapist. Um, who, he wrote the first book ever on male depression. So he's considered, you know, sort of an expert on male psychology. And he's so uh, effective at what he does, by the way, that he's been on Oprah and 2020 and all the big shows because um, he has, he he takes he he counsels marriages that are on the brink of divorce. He won't even take it take you unless you've been through two three therapists already. So he's he's known for being incredibly effective with troubled marriages. And here's what he says: I love this. It ties into what we said earlier. Do you remember the two global studies that found that men all around the world know what the good man is? Mm -hmm. That's what he says. He says, there is the good man in every person, you know, in every man, even in very troubled marriages, even very abusive marriages. Um, the goal is to tap in to their sense of being a good, you know, what it means to be a good man. Because in the heart of hearts, they want to be that. You know, there's a, a, a book called Good men behaving badly by another therapist who says the same thing. He says, you know, often it's a good man behaving badly. Um, so the idea is that you tap into and you encourage the good man part. You know, e even when you talk about abusive uh, marriages and so on, men are made in God's image. And they do, in their heart of hearts, want to be a good man, a good husband, a, a good father. And I think the trickiest thing is... How can we kind of pull that side out, you know, and it's not you who's going to change them, obviously. It's that part of them that responds to God directly and says, yes, you know, I, I do want to follow God's way. And it's there just because they're made in God's image. We can be confident that it is there. And, and these, like, ironically, these secular psychologists who I quote in my book all say that, you know, they all say that there is the good man. The recognition of the good man is innate and inherent mm -hmm. around the world, Christian or non, uh, men have that sense of the good man. And so I think that's, that should guide us when we talk to men. You know, we, sh we should be looking for that when we talk to men, even when we're in trouble. A lot of the way, though, to, to wake a guy up, as you say in your book, is consequences, um, is, is drawing the line, having those boundaries. Um, saying, I will not put up with this anymore. Um, the truth. We, we, we like to say grace and truth, but I like, I think in these situations, you flip it and say truth and grace. If you need to walk in the truth first, you need to wake up, have the consequences, and, and that's okay. You can get through consequences. Um, and, and then God will meet you uh, with his grace to, to change you. Good. I agree. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, I encourage everyone to go get Nancy Piercy's uh, book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. There's so much to it, uh, the way you weave history and, and the narrative. And sometimes 
sometimes guys are the bad guys. Sometimes girls are the bad, the bad girls, you know, back and forth, back and forth. It goes throughout history. And we just happen to be at a point where men are the toxic ones. So um, it's a, it's a very timely book. It helps people to understand what's been happening. And like I said, it, it gives not only gives the knowledge, but it will inspire you and it will convict you uh, as well. So uh, thanks everyone for listening today. To learn more, you can go to bumperstickerfaith.com. And again, I encourage people to go to Amazon or your website is nancypiercy.com. And people can go there to learn uh, more about you and to um, get a copy of the book as well. So thanks everybody for joining us.